Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting December 11th, 2015, we talk with Latin American expert Christopher Reeve again about last weekend's turnabout election in Venezuela, what led to it, and where it may lead. His article in the New World Policy Journal Winter Issue is headlined, Goodbye, Venezuela. We'll also point out other top features in the new WPJ Winter Issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, the terror attack in California is the latest incident to stoke American fears about ISIS, about Muslims, and has taken over the conversation here in Washington. Is the U.S. doing everything it can to beat ISIS, to whom at least one of the California shooters apparently pledged loyalty? And is everything being done to keep it from happening again? In a rare Oval Office address, President Obama sought to reassure a jittery nation. In Iraq and Syria, airstrikes are taking out ISIL leaders, heavy weapons, oil tankers, infrastructure. And since the attacks in Paris, our closest allies, including France, Germany, and the United Kingdom, have ramped up their contributions to our military campaign, which will help us accelerate our effort to destroy ISIL. Yet Obama also says any ultimate defeat of the Islamic State is tied to ending the long, multifaceted, and devastating civil war in Syria. Doing that and getting rid of Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad will, the president says, then allow everyone to focus on ISIS, and that includes the Russians. But that civil war is now nearing its sixth year with no end in sight. What the U.S. will not do, the president emphasized, is get drawn into another prolonged ground war in the Middle East. The president, aiming at critics, has said that is exactly what ISIS wants. The bottom line here, the bombing will continue. Key allies like Britain, France, and Germany are also stepping up to the plate. And it is this coalition that the White House says will ultimately do the trick. Some critics call Obama timid and weak. Others hail his cautiousness. Shifting gears, as those climate talks continue in Paris, the White House is pledging $860 million to small countries that are bearing the brunt of rising seas. That's on top of $3 billion the U.S. pledged earlier to the Green Climate Fund, which focuses on helping countries use more renewable energy and cut carbon emissions. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. The change is coming, Venezuela. Today we have a reason to celebrate. The country called for change, and the change starts today. Citizens made themselves heard in peace and democratically overthrew a government that isn't democratic. Ignorance was truly bliss for many in Venezuela this week. They didn't necessarily know the parliamentary candidates for whom they voted, nor did they care as long as opposition party symbols were next to their names. The result was a stunning two-thirds majority for the Democratic Unity Coalition in the National Assembly. 
Assembly, as celebrated by opposition leader Jesus Toyalba and a cheering crowd at opposition headquarters in Caracas. That victory gave the opposition the power to call a constitutional convention, remove Supreme Court justices, block the policies of longtime President Nicolas Maduro, and possibly pave the way for his ouster after years of strict adherence to the leftist goals of late President Hugo Chavez that have led Venezuela into record inflation, economic contraction, and unprecedented emigration. But is the opposition too splintered to successfully exert its new power? To consider the larger context and implications of the vote in Venezuela, we're pleased to have this return visit from Christopher Reeve, a writer and consultant focusing on Latin America. His article in the new WPJ winter issue is headlined, Goodbye Venezuela, and we spoke days after the election for this special podcast. Christopher Reeve, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Thanks so much, David. I'm happy to be here. First, give us a little more detail on the size and scope of the opposition victory, the the demographic and geographic shifts that were most important to it. So the, the victory, I think, was something that was very much predictable, assuming that we did have free and fair elections in Venezuela. There are a lot of organizations like Datincor and um, Datanalysis that that do very good polling. And we had seen not only a decrease in the number of, of self-identified Chavistas or people who follow or who support the Socialist Party, but individuals who also would then, we would see also an increase in an unaligned group of, of individuals who over time were more uh, apt uh, to vote for the opposition. In Venezuela, there's something that uh, I heard over and over again, and, and it was, and this would be from people who were Chavistas or who, who consider themselves Chavistas. They might still consider themselves Chavistas, and um, they would say, I'm, I'm Chavista, but not Madurista. So they would, they would say that they support um, Chavez, but they wouldn't support Maduro. So with that kind of on-the-line group, the opposition had a, a chance of, of doing well. The economic situation uh, in Venezuela and the lack of security also saw, I'm going to read you some numbers, that in court says that 74% of Venezuelans polled say that the country is in bad or terrible state. For that analysis, that number is 84%. There is a huge um, lack of approval for Maduro, the, the current president of Venezuela, 72%, according to that in court, say that he is incapable of solving the economic problems and the security challenges of Venezuela. And that, that you know, those, those figures really gave the opposition a good chance at um, doing well, which they did in these, in these elections. But a, a key point is the fact that people who historically supported Chavez and the Socialist Party um, have been losing uh, a lot of hope in, in that system, based, just simply based on the economic situation, the inflation, the lack of very basic goods, and the very real lack of security in Venezuela. And the opposition was able to take advantage of that. Well, let's look more closely at those problems that helped propel the opposition victory. First, talk about inflation and what it means for the poor and working classes in terms of uh, life's necessities, uh, the long lines and waiting times to get anything. Yeah, it's 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 actually remarkable. I 
I, I, you know, I was I was just in Venezuela in order to to write the article. And any chance I had to walk into a supermarket, I would do so. And yet there, the meat section, the meat sections of supermarkets are absolutely empty. You can't find rice. You can't find milk. You can't find harina pan, which is which is um, a corn flour used to make a staple for Venezuelans, which is which is the arepa. And you know, when when these products are available they're sold at um at prices below the market value they 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 jump from the shelves very quickly and there is a lot of uh resale on the black market but essentially and caracas actually has more goods than the than the uh, provinces of venezuela so for example when i was in maracaibo you would see lines that would literally span blocks and if you have a job um i don't know how you're going to access food so there's you know th- there is this whole new economy based on accessing food and for poor people if you can get your hands on food, which is very difficult, and, and it, it increasingly requires connections, it, it means you know someone who works at the store who can maybe put something aside for you or call you when, when milk is available. And what the government has tried to do is um, they limit the amount of products people can buy because uh, there is no confidence in, 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 the, in the economy itself. So when, an, when families find milk, they're going to try to get as much as, as possible. So and the government wants it limits the amount of, of food you can take and they, they have also begun to take the identity number of people just to just to kind of keep tabs on who's buying what but this lack of, uh, of access to very basic goods it, it goes beyond you know food it's medicine over-the-counter medicine condoms I mean just everything you can imagine people do not have access to and, and it is causing those people fighting at supermarkets there are there's looting frequently the supermarket if there's people that begin to get angry they'll they'll shut the gates down because they're scared that this crowd is just gonna is just gonna break in and take everything and and there's this huge black market now and also venezuela has a border with colombia it has a border with with the country with with free markets and and it is and it, with this kind of stagnant economy that is venezuela a lot of people are finding business and, and taking venezuela underpriced venezuelan goods and taking them to free markets like colombia to sell for a profit you report even those running larger businesses are being squeezed by the overall stagnation and regulation of a leftist guided economy. Uh, say more about that. For businesses, they're not able. They they're given a a a price a a a precio justo a a just price as per the government, and but they're they're the factors of production that they that they need they access they need to access um, on the black market so frequently they can't make a profit so companies go out of business so that's one thing that occurs there is a the government determines a price that they need to sell the product and it's ostensibly so that poor people can access the product but then the firms for the inputs they're paying black market prices because they can't otherwise access the goods and now they're expected to sell the product at a loss and and obviously that doesn't work and then the other thing is the expropriations um different uh, agricultural company companies that that make uh food or even land even assets of, of companies like uh polar the, the government is a huge company um called uh, Empresa Polar, and they make the beer, and they make harina pan, and a number of other products, and the government has has been kind of uh, 
engaging in this discourse of expropriating them and taking land from them, et cetera, and making, making their business practice more difficult. But essentially what happens is what we've seen in Venezuela is when the government expropriates uh, an organization, be it to produce milk or, or some agricultural product, that the efficiency uh, decreases. We saw this when... Um, when the government fired thousands of workers at the uh, at the nationalized um, oil uh, firm, and and efficiency went down because you had uh, a loss of know-how, you had a loss of of these individuals who were experts in their field, and the government was just putting other people in there who who just simply could not do the job as efficiently and as effectively as as uh, people who had been doing that their whole lives or who come from a family who, who work in that field would have done. So you, you see uh, just a, a lack of efficiency that, again, contributes to uh, scarcity in products. What about the impact of falling oil prices and uh, falling revenues, therefore, uh, for the government? Yeah, that's been huge. And I think um, uh, President Chavez, I, I think he was lucky in, in that he was able to ride a wave of relatively high oil prices. And I think uh, the other side of that coin is true that Nicolas Maduro is, is, has been unlucky to, to be president during a period in which the barrel is, is very low. It's about $40 now. So during the period of Chavez, the oil revenue was used to, to build houses and to, to establish these stores in poor neighborhoods called Mercales where people could go and, and get goods. And this increased, uh, just greatly increased support for the government. And the government had the funds to do so because of, because of the price of oil, as you, as you just mentioned. And now the government just doesn't have that income anymore. So I, I, what I've observed and kind of concluded in speaking with Venezuelans is there's a lot of people, especially, uh, supporters of the, of the socialist party, they blame Maduro but there is this kind of lack of understanding of the greater economic forces at play. And, when, you know, people would say, well, but Chavez was building these homes and he did all these things, but there was money to do so. And Maduro just almost, you know, as, as, a, as a result of luck, he just doesn't have the funds to, to, to give people, the poor people, the the homes and the food and and the concessions that um, that Chavez was able to do so and that is that certainly uh, it contributes to the to the loss of support for Maduro and and for the Socialist Party. The government also blames bad conditions on what it calls an economic war waged by Esqualidos in Venezuela, exiles in Miami, and certain Colombians. So who are these folks and what are they up to, allegedly and actually? Right. So now with the, with the uh, victory of the opposition coalition, uh, Maduro, he did accept the defeat. Uh, he had said that he would not give up the Bolivarian revolution of Chavez, but he did uh, immediately go on TV and accept the defeat, but he didn't accept any, any blame for uh, the conditions of Venezuela, as you, as you say, he blames this economic war. And this is something, this is uh, a discourse that he has engaged in for some time. And essentially what the story is, is that there are these kind of forces in the shadows that are 
working to destabilize the country and that are causing the scarcity of goods and the inflation and the uh, and even even crime to some extent. Uh, there's 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 a lack of, of, of admittance of admitting that there is that the crime is an issue and violence is an issue in Venezuela. But there's this conspiracy uh, theory that is kind of. Uh, uh, it, it is to some degree widespread because I, I did speak with people not who are, do not work for the government but who support the government and, and they also buy into this idea of an economic war. So essentially, there is, for example, there's an organization in Miami called Dollar Today. It is um, admittedly against the socialist government in Venezuela and they publish the market rate, uh, the market value of the Bolivar the Venezuelan currency vis-a-vis the dollar, and they get that information from Colombians uh, on the border who are trading, who are using, who are buying and selling bolivares, and they can gauge the price, uh, whether or not dollars are used, the, the Colombian peso can be used, and you can gauge the price of the dollar on the free market. And the, the Venezuelan government has tried to regulate the price of dollars, which has caused this, it has brought... Uh, this huge black market for for dollars, and there's three official exchange rates. Uh, there's the market rate, which is also a distortion uh, of what the rate would be, and it's because the government has tried so hard to regulate the, the price of money. And so there's this idea that it's that these forces are, are working specifically to destabilize the country and the government. And again, there is a lack of acceptance of macroeconomic policy failure uh, on the part of the government. And the idea that there are kind of very basic economic laws of, of supply and demand and, and pricing and, and um, free markets and, and, and the power of markets to determine prices, etc. So it's it's certainly political in in that it's a lack of accepting the failure of policy but i do i would venture to say that that i don't know if if the government actually believes that is the case but there are there are certainly many venezuelans that do believe that there are these figures in the shadow that are seeking to destabilize the country and that it's not just a you know the result of poor economic policy and people trying to make a living you you know you buy milk for for very little money and if you can sell it the same day for a lot of money that's what people are going to do people are going to engage in those businesses and it's not necessarily a conspiracy to to overthrow your government how does all this link to that rise in violent crime that threatens venezuelans today uh, and what you say is the government's tendency to deny it right the venezuela is remarkably uh, dangerous. There is a, a, an organization in Mexico, uh, the Citizen Council for Public Safety and Criminal Justice, and they place Venezuela at number two uh, in terms of violent countries. Caracas, the capital, uh, is also at number two. And <clears throat> Venezuela, the, in speaking with people while I was there, uh, the, the, the the notion of, of violence and security and safety these they're all they're almost all consuming and people talk about them when i bring up migration because the focus of the article is migration but with a huge um basis of, of the push factors 
and and people talk about crime and violence and security all the time. People aren't going out. Diosdado Cabello, who is the head of who's the current head of the National Assembly, told Jorge Ramos that these figures of of crime and violence are are not to be believed, and they're part of this international conspiracy against Venezuela. They're part of the the economic and capitalist interests of the world that seek to take uh, control over uh, Venezuela's resources. But the the fact is, when you talk to Venezuelans, I met a woman who had a who has had a gun pointed at her eight times. I was with uh, colleagues leaving a party at night, and you re- you know you very rarely go at night, and we we had to run to the car. It was almost surreal, and I've been to. You know, North Sinai and, and, and Gaza and, and Tripoli and, and, and Benghazi and Libya and, and a lot of places that are kind of generally accepted to, to be dangerous. And I didn't have to kind of consider uh, my safety to the extent that I felt like I had to do so in, in Venezuela. Venezuela also has a rate of impunity of, of 98%, and this is based on the government. People, people aren't going to jail. People aren't going to prison for crimes. I mean, people, it's almost uh, the Wild West, and families, they, they consider that. Parents, uh, they, when they talk about migration for their kids, uh, security is, is their number one concern. Talk about the way the Maduro government has pushed back on political opponents within its reach. Right. So one of the major goals of the of the opposition coalition is to is to release the political prisoners, depending on the organization uh, that that takes uh, tabs. There are up to 100 political prisoners in Venezuela at the moment. And one of them, the uh, a, a pro, you know, a, a high-level leader is Leopoldo Lopez, who was uh, sentenced to nearly 14 years in jail for inciting violence. He was a presidential candidate, and so this is something that occurs: is basically individuals that um, that the government, you know, doesn't agree with. They they are put in jail. Uh, another. Uh, another figure that we look at is the number of Venezuelans in the U.S. who are seeking political asylum. It's in the tens of thousands, and um, that again goes to show that there is uh, a, a political repression that occurs in Venezuela. About a week and a half before the these last uh, National Assembly elections, a leader of the of uh, Democratic action. The, the one of the parties in the opposition coalition was actually killed at a rally, and you know, the government said that it was related to to, to a vendetta. I, I at least suspected that it, that there was some fear that was kind of being uh, fomented prior to these elections. It was a message, I think, that that uh, this individual was killed, uh, Luis Manuel Diaz, and it was kind of saying, you know. It's, Venezuela's not a safe place, and, and um, you know, we have the elections coming up, but we have to be careful. And there has been a lot of political violence. There were um, Guarimbas and, and, you know, 40-something Venezuelans were killed. But that being said, in terms of political violence, these elections validated the voices that said that the, that the way out of this crisis or the way to to topple this government was through elections. There was a lot of people. I, I interviewed a gentleman in Miami who he he was uh, politically persecuted and he helped 
individuals navigate the political asylum process. And he didn't believe that um, that the Socialist Party in Venezuela could be defeated electorally by the vote. He said these 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 guys are 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 a, are a gang of thugs, and the only thing that they are going to understand is violence. And they have these armed groups, these colectivos in Venezuela, that they have used to um, to quiet dissent and the dissenting voices. But but these elections show that uh, the the vote actually can work, and it did. Well, up to the time of the election, how large has the exodus been? What kind of folks are able to leave and how? So as as of now, there are about 2 million Venezuelans outside of the country, or about 6%. It is generally middle-class and upper-class Venezuelans who have left, but not exclusively. It, it, you know, Venezuelans of different classes have been able to leave. What is remarkable about the exodus is that it is it, it is a brain drain. It's characterized by a brain drain. Uh, Tomas Baez is an academic. He's a Venezuelan academic in Spain at the moment, and he he just published a book on the diaspora, and he says that 90% of Venezuelans uh, who have left have at least one post-secondary degree. So that is a, you know a loss to to Venezuela that individuals who had done well in, in business, who had studied, who were accomplished, and who have a lot to offer, have elected to leave the country because of the economic conditions, the, the lack of hope. You know, that's something that people say, the, I can't, you know, achieve self-realization in Venezuela. I can't get the job that I want and, and, to be, and be paid adequately in order to, to live moderately, comfortably. So people are leaving, and um, it has been something of a brain drain that Venezuela has seen. I was interested in the role of the website IWantToLeave.com in English and Spanish. Yeah, um, I want to leave that comment is, is, is interesting. They, it's an organization. It's run by Esther Bermudez. They, uh, participate in, in what they call Expo Migras, these, um, these expositions in Venezuela, uh, where people go and just find out how to leave. And essentially they're, they're consultants and they help Venezuelans who want to leave maneuver the legalities of leaving and help them determine what type of jobs they, they might be able to get if they qualify for visas. They steer them in the direction of um, which, which countries they might elect to go to. A lot of the countries, um, and this is something Esther Bermudez, you know, she mentioned to me a lot, some of the countries, not that they're saturated, but now that a lot of Venezuelans have already gone to the U.S., have already gone to Spain, so those countries might not be as open as they were before. So now we see Venezuelans going to places where they don't have any cultural links, you know, like Australia. So you have all these Venezuelans that are now going to Australia and um, I mean, there's there's Venezuelans in in Ireland. There's Venezuelans in Portugal. Something interesting. Venezuelan Venezuela was a country that that really attracted people from all over the world. So a lot of people are kind of looking at their own ethnic background and determining where their parents or grandparents were from and where they might be able to get a visa uh, to to be able to leave Venezuela. And this is something that um, this website, makeitoweed.com, uh, helps them to do. And Esther, she told me 
as we were as we were moving towards the elections, I was curious to know if there was a decrease in um, in queries about leaving. Because I was thinking, you know, the 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 surveys were kind of were were predicting a win by the opposition, and I was wondering if Venezuelans were going to be a little hopeful and kind of wait it out. And she said that there was not a decrease, that she's all throughout 2015, she's getting 5.5 million views, page views uh, a day, and, and she continues to get queries for uh, consultation. So it, 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 is, it has become this kind of institution that people who want to leave, especially in the middle and upper classes, they all know about. Well, let's consider what the fallout of the election might be. Uh, exactly what powers could the new parliamentary majority wield? How could they impact the Maduro agenda and even his remaining in office? So it was, uh, you know, you mentioned before, and it was it's significant that they have the two-thirds majority. And um, right now, the, you know, leaders of, of the opposition, the the objectives are, the political prisoners, that's, that's a huge objective. Maduro, you know, there's, there's, depending on who you ask, there's up to a hundred, uh, political prisoners. Maduro just said that he will, that he would be against amnesty, uh, for political prisoners, and that's, that's gonna be an area of contention. He, a lot of times the political prisoners are put in jail or prison uh, because of their accused of violence or inciting violence. And he says, and that's exactly what he said, well, these, these guys are, are violent and they're in jail for that reason. And he doesn't necessarily perceive them as political prisoners. And this is where the Supreme Court is going to come in and there's going to be some tension there because as of now, the the Socialist Party is is very much uh, in control of a lot of the institutions, including the the. Um, the Electoral Council, which was a concern for for and for Venezuela watchers when when we were waiting for the results of the elections. So that's one, and and another one is Maduro's his his own political future. The uh, one of the one of the surveys by Data Analysis says that 62 percent of Venezuelans say that Maduro should not finish uh, his term. So the opposition is certainly going to use its two-thirds majority to to call for a a referendum on his on his rule, and that's going to you know we're going to see that play out in in 2016. But again, uh, the, you know the, there's there's the courts that are still aligned to Maduro, or perhaps the judges are going to change alignment. I mean, stranger things have happened, but uh, the, the the priorities I think now are. Maduro's rule, the political prisoners, the longer-term issues of, of, you know, the economic situation in Venezuela, the situation of crime, those are going to take a long time to deal with. The, the you know, the rate of impunity for, for criminal acts, those are going to take a long time to deal with. And, and you have, you know, ministries in the government that have more say than a national assembly would. So they're going to have to deal with the, the opposition is going to have to figure out how they're going to put into place more free market uh, policies that could, I would argue, would, would stabilize the country. And, and one thing that I do want to add, I, I met a friend of uh, Enrique Capriles who, who lost to Maduro in 2013 for the presidency. And, and he, you know, the man was, was speaking to me about Capriles and saying that, you know, he's a socialist. You know, this is a guy who wants, you know, poor people to eat as well. And, and we uh, looking at how a lot of individuals have, 
have expressed the outcome of the election. It's all the right wing. But um, I, I think that there is there is an understanding now, especially after 17 years of, of Chavez, Chavez's policies and socialist policies and the way that they've been implemented, that um, Venezuela is a country that has had a lot of poverty and a lot of individuals living in poverty, and, and they cannot be marginalized anymore. And, we, and Venezuela has to look out for all of its citizens and um, ensure that, that you know, no one gets left behind. And I think that there is an understanding on the part of the opposition. And if you, you know, I looked at um, Capri is uh, you know the website his website and, and it does talk about social justice and those types of things and I think that the opposition does understand that um, you know it's not the same Venezuela as it was prior to Chavez and, and people cannot be left in you know in poverty the way they had been and uh, I think that that's going to be taken into consideration as well. But we also read about divisions within the opposition that might cripple its chances to change things. Yeah, I I think so. What's interesting, so historically, the uh, the two major parties in Venezuela had been um, Democratic Action and Cope, and and now they're they're together. They they form part of of this um, opposition coalition. So uh, there's certainly uh, and there there are numerous uh, parties there. Uh, Voluntad Popular, uh, Primero Justicia, and over time, there we're going to begin to see divisions. Certainly, I would say that at the moment, the the needs of Venezuela are so pressing and and so basic in terms of just food and security, uh, and bring, bringing the country to some level of, of normality, that we're that those divisions, ideological or even just simply political divisions, I don't think that. That they're going to manifest themselves anytime soon. I think that the opposition coalition, as we speak, is um, they're in sync in terms of what those first major goals are. And then once you know, once once Maduro, once they figure out how they want to deal with Maduro, if they want to have a referendum, as most Venezuelans have expressed, they want, including. Yeah, like I said earlier, people who supported Chavez, Chavez, they they want they don't want Maduro to finish. They they blame him and his and the management that he has brought for the the ills of the country. So I, I feel like once they have done these things, dealt with political prisoners, change macroeconomic policy so that the country can return to some level of normality where you can go into a store and find rice and arena pan, people's very basic needs can be met. And you can have uh, some confidence from the business sector where people, and there are some people who are opening businesses, which is something that I observed, which is very interesting. They saw opportunity, where a lot of people saw craziness and a mess, they saw opportunity. But um, Venezuela currently does not inspire confidence in any way. So there's a lot that they need to work on, and they're going to be in sync. And I think later on we're going to see the divisions. And the opposition might get some assistance from what I, I read are divisions on Maduro's side of the aisle, maybe not so much loyalty as before. Right. There is certainly um, a decrease in in so-called uh, chavistas, and and we have seen, like I said, that increase in in that middle ground, those, those unaligned voters. And there's individuals, and this is something, you know, there was – it just in, in, in Cuba, there was a lot of support for Castro, but then over time, individuals who had supported him, they decided that they didn't. And, and I'm, I saw a lot of that in Venezuela, where there was this support, initial support across 
um, socioeconomic sectors, strata, for the ideals of, of the government, but over time when the policies uh, showed that they were not working, that they that they couldn't work, there there we started to see a rejection of that. So from among the people, there there are there is this rejection now of of, of Chavismo to a, to a certain extent. Although I I think that people, uh, you know, Chavez was was a very charismatic man and and an intelligent. Uh, to a great extent, and, and people love him, and there's a lot of people that really love him. And within the party as well, I think there's going to be the acceptance that this didn't work, this isn't working, and the National Assembly is now two-thirds opposition. We have to work with them to some extent if we're going to get things done. And that, I think, would be the most intelligent uh, move on the part of the the politicians from the Socialist Party it would be to work with and to try to improve conditions um, alongside the, the the leaders of the opposition who who now will be sitting with them at the assembly. Christopher Reeve, thank you. Thank you so much, David. It's always a pleasure. Christopher Reeve is a writer and consultant focusing on Latin America. His article in the new WPJ Winter Issue is headlined "Goodbye Venezuela." Also featured in the new WPJ Winter Issue, you'll find articles on Latin America's evolving economics and culture, the changing face of Cuba, black sites on the Internet, and deadly interactions on the Syria-Turkey border. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on what was and was not accomplished at the Big Paris Climate Convention. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal, at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>